Life, death, grief and grace are the topics that we dive into in this week's episode. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. Mary Dwyer is someone that you are absolutely drawn towards. Her grace, her character and presence are palpable and I know that you will feel them through today's conversation. Her day job, so to speak, she specialises in working with political, business and spiritual leaders across the globe. She has a career that has seen her work with leaders from World Bank, European Union, OECD, United Nations, the military, top level politicians, diplomats, CEOs, boards, executive teams and individuals from a whole range of different organisations. Mary has an uncanny ability to produce work that is dynamic, inclusive, inspiring and has an extraordinary impact. She's also walked the path of losing her husband to cancer when he was only 50 years old. In her book, The Final Act of Grace, she talks about this experience and how it brought her and can bring others into the light of eternal grace. The final act of grace is a profound and inspirational story about one man's death that left everyone present in a state of awe, watching as a soul became enlightened. If you've lost or fear losing a loved one, then this conversation will be the balm for your soul. Soak up the wisdom and the grace that is Mary Dwyer. Mary, it's such a delight to be connecting with you, to be sitting down with you. Thanks, Ellie. Lovely, lovely that we've actually managed to make it happen. Yes, I know. I know. I think um, been a few stop starts and a few, um, you know, it is the year that it is, but um, it was definitely a conversation that I was eager and knew that we would get to and, and craft in between. Look, one of the things that we often do through the podcast series, I guess, is kind of weave through some of the threads of people's lives. Um, I'm interested to start with what what will be a fairly major question probably, but I think it'll probably weave where we go. But do you have a a life philosophy or a philosophy that you find yourself kind of returning to? Uh, something that gives you a bit of a, a direction in the in the storms and the seas that might be a bit turbulent. Ali, I should have known there'd be a question like that to start with. (laughs) I should have absolutely anticipated that one. And where I am now, but also if I look back on my life, even though I didn't know how to articulate it like I do now, I would say that um, so I'm 59, I'm nearly 60, I'm at the top of my career and I would say out of every single thing that I've learnt, and this applies to my personal life and my professional life as well, is that loving kindness is the most powerful tool for transformation that we have by none. And that's whether I'm working one-on-one with a leader, whether I'm working in a large corporate organisation doing a leadership program or whether I'm wrestling with my own stuff, you know, that still evolves, you know, loving kindness to myself or loving kindness to my mum or, you know, loving kindness to people I'm in conflict, you know, I've got a little bit of uh, going on with. So, yeah, general philosophy, sort of a good blanket to wrap around any situation, I think, is um, loving kindness. And I didn't always think that way. Yeah, 
That's my go-to now. Nice, beautiful. I think, um, as you say, the antidote for so many so many different things and so many different areas, often to ourselves in a lot of ways as well. Growing up, was that kind of messages that you heard or is that uh, different to, to the things that you came across? Look, I came from a very loving family and love was never anything that we expressed using those words. So I can remember having a conversation with my mum when I was probably about 24. I can't even remember how old I'm saying, but you never, ever told me you loved me. And she said, but I told you every single day, you know, by everything that I did. Mm. So that, you know, that, that generation that didn't have, maybe they didn't even have the language like we have now, or let alone the knowledge about emotions. But the, uh, it, so it was never expressed that way. And mum was right. It was also expressed in, you know, all of the other hundreds of ways that she did every single day. And I grew up in the Catholic tradition and, of course, love is one of their platforms as well. But they also have a lot of mixed messages, I find, in, in that faith. So, yes, it was there. Now it's really overt in my life. And I just actually really call it out now. You know, if as a leader that you are not operating out of love, you're probably operating out of fear. Hmm. And you are most likely not serving yourself or your organisation well. And if we want people to be able to talk about the hard stuff in life, then they have to be able to sit down knowing that they won't be judged or criticised, but they will be held in love and inquiry. And maybe you can't really do that without a lot of work on ourselves too because we're also scared that we won't be loved. I mean, I I absolutely agree with you in a lot of ways. The two emotions we have is either love or fear and they come back to those center ones. Had a conversation just recently actually with a leader and I know so much of your work is really uplifting and talking to leaders in, in a corporate world but where they're at and inviting some of these conversations but had a conversation just recently and, uh, and said, oh, I think maybe some stuff's coming through fear and they went, no, 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 I'm just concerned or I'm just worried. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's kind of it leads you back to the same place um it's not one or the other i'm just frustrated okay again i uh, i think that's uh the pathway and it and and it does it takes this this reflection that i think um and we'll get to the work that you do and how you invite people too. One of the the beautiful gifts that you have pulled together is is an extraordinary book called The Final Act of Grace. And and you really walk through grief and loss and love and uh, growth and transformation and and how they come together. And in a moment, I'm going to, you know, invite you to, to unpack some of the story, but Talk me through the title of the book, The Final Act of Grace. What, where did that land and what does that mean for you? Uh, you know, as, as you know, being an author as well, you know, books, books sometimes have many titles. Mm. You know, so it was called 80s Journey for a while and had several different names. And then I actually think it was a girlfriend who is a writer. When she finished reading the book, she said, you know, this actually talks about the final act that was done in grace. And it was like, ah, you know, there's the title, Mm. the final act of grace. And indeed, you know, that's what it was, you know, Adrian's death. 
Well, and if they say that grace is is like God or spirit or whatever that is manifesting through you so that another people can really see it and sense it, then something like that absolutely happened on the day that he died. So it was just a title that went, that's the title. And then the tagline, live well, love well, die well, and the first edition had um, had mastering a peaceful death as its tagline. And even though I really liked that the live well, love well and die well, I think was a more expansive of what the book is about because it's not just about dying well, even though, even though that's, that's what the book is about, but it's how do you live so that that's even a possibility in, in your life and you can't do that unless we learn how to love well and, you know, as you know in the book, I didn't really get what that was about until, you know, the last 24 hours of Adrian's life, you know, when I went, oh, my goodness, you know, this man has adored me, like, you know, loved me all of my life, but because of my own self-doubt, I couldn't allow that in. You know, I allowed it in, you know, I allowed it in, but not, not with the richness and the fullness and the total acceptance that this person had for me. And, wow, to have that as a gift in your life and not receive it, wow, I didn't, you know, as I said, I didn't get that until, the, until he was literally mm-hmm. going to sleep and going into unconsciousness and fading in and out of that, and that's when I really got it. Mm. I mean, a gift. I mean, so many of us don't at any point, <laughs> uh, and no doubt there were moments where it might have felt like too late or, you know, but, but still to arrive at that is extraordinary. It really helped me when I was falling in love with Chris, my second husband, because I just decided that I was going to do this marriage, which I didn't know I was going to end up in a marriage, but you know, this journey really differently. I was actually going to really receive the love because my mind was doing all sorts of stuff. It's too early, you know, it's, um, you know, Chris has got a child, you don't want to do that, you've just come out of that, you're still grieving, you're heartbroken, what the fuck, you know, all of that. And yet all I kept on saying to myself was, what does this feel like? And I'd go, it absolutely feels like love. And then it was, well, allow it in. Just allow it in. If it's meant to grow and be and flourish it will and if it's not it won't but don't stop it again you know now's choice point and and what am I going to do so we we came up with a term I'll drink it in Mm. when it would come and my mind my rational mind would do the diatribe what we actually expressed to each other and me maybe more to myself than anyone else was drink it in, allow it in, just allow it in, mm. and we'll see. Beautiful. So Adrian was your first husband, yeah. Uh, yeah. the father to your amazing children. How did you both meet? Oh, I was a young nurse and lived in Launceston and Adrian lived down here in Hobart and it was his brother's birthday and one of my nursing friends was going out with his brother and so we drove him down Oh, which I've heard him to meet him for his birthday. And Adrian opened up the door and just said, oh, she, like she's here. 
<laughs> he was t- he was 24 and I was 21. I didn't I was 20 actually. I didn't really feel that strongly about him in the same way straight away and I was and there was all and there was something there straight away. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't see each other for a couple of days and then that was the party night and that night we ended up on the top of Mount Wellington and we just spoke all night until the sun rose. And that's a sign of, um, yeah, that's the sign of something that's good. Cool. <laughs> you could hang out with this person a little longer. <laughs> and a little kiss on the cheek, just a peck. But, I, like, I can almost still feel that kiss now and that's, my goodness, nearly 40 years later. Mm. So it was it was a great relationship but it was also as you know from the book um a real ma- a real marriage and what I mean by that is that we learned we learnt and we grew up together and in that growing up there were times when our marriage was really tenuous and especially when one of us would do a really big growth of self and maybe the other one hadn't yet started or and it said there were three different points over the course of the 28 years that we were married where we were blessed to stay together, actually. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you know, being, being around this long on the planet, we're fortunate enough to have now witnessed a community have you know, fall in love, fall out of love, get divorced, marriages, get divorced again, marriage again, divorced again, you know. Um, Every single birth, deaths, everything that you can imagine, some divorces really amicable, others really, really painful, all of them painful actually, even the amicable ones. And I just think we were lucky enough that Every time we were at one of those really deep questioning points, something would happen and we would come back together again and so we'd start another flourishing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, marriage um, marriage does ride those. It rides those, um, you know, I think my husband and I often talk about marriage and life and what that means and have quite deep conversations but I think and you mentioned before as well these these moments where one grows and the other one doesn't and that can be those stretch marks in marriages and I think you know it is that constantly allowing and providing and stretching and 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 how important growth is on both sides and it doesn't necessarily happen at the same time but to constantly be pulling that forward is um is a really big part of it my husband also has a theory that um that uh and whether it's true or not true but um that the the males if they love more if they have a stronger um connection then then often that can um strengthen the relationship as well so I don't know how, how accurate that theory is that rings true in our case <laughs> I would yeah. have done in my reactivity and my lack of development I would have absolutely done I'm out of here yeah <laughs> yeah because that was my pattern you know I'd flounce and do I'm an out of here mm. and it was it was he's solid he was so solid he was a big tree mm-hmm. he was my big tree um yeah so it was at, tell tell your 
beautiful man and I haven't met him but just even what I know about you and the way that I've heard and read you know your how you've talked about your husband um yeah he's a really good man Mm. and aren't we lucky to find good good men yes yeah yeah Yeah. that's too and marriage so marriage has those moments those uh realizations and it's hard and you're fucking annoying at times <laughs> and all the rest. One of the things that sometimes you don't plan for is ill health. Yeah. And you and Adrian faced that and came across that in a way that you don't choose and don't want to come across. Can you remember the moment of, of finding out and, and happy to talk through that story? Absolutely. So he was having some dental work done on a root canal and he had a part of a tooth that was chipped that kept on irritating his tongue and then that tongue got a slight ulcer on it. We were about to run a really special retreat looking at wisdom, the development of wisdom in leaders and Adrian rang and said, I've just come from the dentist and he's really concerned about that ulcer. He thinks it looks cancerous and wants me to go and have a biopsy straight away. And I can remember laughing out loud and saying, oh, just take some antibiotics. <laughs> just Anyway, Adrian didn't go to that retreat and that was a huge thing for us to not turn up. And we had a substitute consultant, but that was Adrian's work. Mm. And so that was huge for Adrian to go, no, I'm going to get this checked out. And it was. It was cancerous and nearly, so that was July 21st and he was dead on May the, May the 7th the next year. Mm. His 50th birthday was in November that year and we'd celebrate it because we, you know, he, they'd got it all. And then just before Christmas 2008, the 2008 Christmas, he said, oh, I've just got this slight swelling in one of my lymph glands in my neck and I can remember feeling it and just literally my whole blood turned to ice mm. and I just went, fuck, you know. Yeah, and he was dead five months later. So really quick and from a really healthy You know, he was healthy on his 50th birthday. Wow, he was healthy because he'd had, you know, six months of incredible self-care, you know, maximising every single chance that he had to make his body strong for surgery and post-surgery recovery and all that sort of stuff and, you know, cleaning up any part of his lifestyle or taking it, you know, the next level. So he just looked fabulous and, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah, didn't see that coming, although Adrian always said that he would be out of there by 50. We always thought that meant work, you know, formal, the, the level of working at the intensity we were working at. Mm. But now, you know, he said that to me all, all his life and now I look back and go, oh, you know, maybe we know so much more than what we think that we know. Yeah. He was actually, he was out of here by 50. The things that come out that we don't understand the meaning of at times. Yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary. Maybe it didn't mean that, but on reflection, maybe it did. Don't Mm. know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How did you find, and I know you talk about it beautifully, but I'm interested in hearing your navigating 
the grief, the problem solving, your own and his at the same time or in the same moments. Talk me through that ride. (laughs) It was so hard. It, It was so hard. And even though I'd had a background in palliative care, nursing which absolutely aided you know was was a a support during that time having that knowledge it was still really hard the first time that I spoke out loud sweetheart what if you die no because you know your whole focus is on getting better getting healthy staying positive um you know it, it so to utter those words or to utter that question, I can still feel what it took to mention that. And I said, but let's just have one really, really big conversation about this and then let's put it aside. And it, was a, it was incredibly difficult. Mm. And I'm so pleased we had that conversation because it was absolutely held us in really good stead for when that was happening. And we only really had 48 hours notice from when he was told that the cancer had spread until when he actually died. And that is not the time <laughs> when no. you need to be having that conversation about even things like what are the passwords, you know, how many bank accounts have we got? or uh, if there anyone else that you need to clean up with you know it's it's almost too late Mm. then to be having those conversations and all that that person really needs then is absolute permission to go and so they can journey what ostensibly is the greatest journey of our life so they can journey that I think as freely as possible and that's not to say that I wasn't panicked. You know, there was one point, and I still regret asking this actually, at one point during that time I said to him, what, what would you do? And I really regret asking that. Why is that? Because I'd made it about me and he was dying. Mm. <laughs> you know, just for that, that set, that, you know, that five minutes or whatever, I made it about me. And, yeah, wow. So I look back on that and and wish I hadn't asked that, although what he said was also really important. <laughs> yeah. He, he, was, he gave me permission, actually, to live a really rich and full life after his death. Mm-hmm. So in some ways I hadn't actually thought about that until right now, Ali, mm-hmm. talking to you. So look at the beauty that you've already, that you bring out. Yeah. Thank you. And I wonder, and again, you know, in that moment I go, maybe he needed it to not be about him for, for five minutes as well. <laughs> you know, he's probably going, I'm done with me. Come Good reframe. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Well, this just made the day. <laughs> what did you, and again, I know there are so many and it's all in the book and, and uh, we will share the links on that, but in your words, what did you learn from him in being there, in seeing how he stepped into that passage? Yeah. He, before he got to that stage, he, he, he'd started to really clean up his life 
and that meant forgiving himself and forgiving absolutely every single other person for anything that had ever happened to him. And sometimes that meant he had conversations with people, but often not. He, you could visibly see him becoming happier, glowing. So, you know, here's someone facing horrendous therapy, you know, it was so painful and, and yet he was journeying and working on himself in such a way that he was becoming divinely beautiful through this process. It was, ama- it was really amazing to watch. And then when he actually knew he was dying and he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to consciously stop all treatment and I'm going to let go. I'm going to start to meditate and I'm going to let go. To watch someone actually do that was stunning. It was breathtaking. And to watch him be so present for everyone who came to see him and say goodbye to him, to watch him be so present with his children, (laughs) actually probably... And I know that you can do this, Ali, sit with someone in complete presence. It is sacred. Mm. It's sacred. It's holy. It's a holy space to really 100% be there, whether it's for your partner or your children or your mum or your clients or, or, or receiving news from a friend. To really be there present is it's profound. Hmm. So he spent two days in a profound space and every person who came to say goodbye to him, he, he just nailed it. <laughs> you know, he, he nailed the sentence that they needed. Hmm. Um, just to watch him do that, it was ultimate, ultimate expression of his life, his, his own life's journey including around leadership development and consciousness development and all that stuff. And he was so beautiful. He was beautiful. He was becoming more and more beautiful. And at the same time, his body was really distorting really, really quickly. So that was a weird juxtaposition. Mm. But it's a bit like, you know, someone you really love. You you don't see their non-beauty maybe even just with our partners, you know, they, they might be a little bit unshaven or, un, or they might have put on weight or, you know, whatever. Mm. But actually when you're really with that person, you don't see that. You don't notice that. I'm sure with you and your partner, you don't really notice yourself getting older. You know, we're, but we're, we're constantly changing. But we could, we could see... <laughs> I've just had an image come into my mind of um, the faces you see where they might age someone really quickly and then reverse it. Mm. It was like that. We could see many, many faces of this man. I could watch, I could see Adrian becoming an 80-year-old man and then he would be a young boy. It was it was just exquisite to watch. Mm. And I think the thing that made the most difference was that he was not scared of death. That's extraordinary. Yes, yeah, it is extraordinary. And I think um, there's a few things come to mind from what you've spoken about. I do think, you know, it is the ultimate gift to be in just present with someone, 
to not be trying to run for a solution or an answer or to get it right even. There's something about just that letting go and just being. Um, if anyone's ever been on the receiving end of that, you know what it's like. Like it's just this extraordinary that someone's not rushing off to something or thinking about something else in that moment. And just the courage it would have taken you is the other thing that comes to mind. You know, the, I imagine there might have been moments where you go, no, 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 hang on, like we've got a little bit longer. <laughs> we'll do that later. <laughs> like, not just yet, but to trust his timing in that, in that moment as well is, um, is extraordinary. Well, it was, you could, you could just feel it was his time. Mm. It was absolutely right. It, it, it was also incredibly wrong and not fair. Mm. And, and there were parts of me screaming inside saying no, you know, no. And there was also the other side going, so right, it is your time. Mm. It's done. You're done now. I get it. You're done. You're full. You're complete. You're beautiful. You're done. <laughs> yeah. And he was so excited to just see what it was all about. You know, this journey of death, or you know, that we'd had so many red wine conversations over, you know, over 30 odd years and many dinner parties discussing, you know, life and death and mm. religions and philosophy and all that stuff. And he was, wow, it's my, I'm going, it's my time. I get to find out. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. And I think not having any fear of death really made a huge difference for my children. In what ways? What comes to mind? Um, it allowed them to be much more accepting of this, I was going to use the word tragedy there. It's often viewed as a tragedy, but actually I think that's a part of our shadow, our denial of about death, you know, because actually death is the most normal, natural thing and it happens all the time and every single one of us are dying or are going to die. We're all dying in the process mm. of living and dying. But our death is already waiting for us, for every single one of us. And we are getting better, I think, especially in comparison to when I was a palliative care nurse. We are getting better and yet we have got a long way to go about fully accepting death as an intrinsic part of life. How important do you think it is for us to be to be having those conversations about death, the ones you described, the red wine conversations at dinner parties that, you know, in some ways, in retrospect, help to serve the final experience? Um, and yet so often we don't want to talk about that. We avoid it or we use humour yeah. to mask. How important is it to have those conversations, even in the midst of life? <laughs> and... And I understand the fear, you know, like I, I've already mentioned in this pod, when, you know, that moment when I really had to have that conversation with Adrian, what, what if you die? You know, let's go there mm. at least once. Okay, it's omnipresent. It's here. It's actually a possibility. You know, you're getting massive treatment. Let's go there for real instead of just an exploration. But all the other conversations that we'd ever had probably helped us have that one that was really, really necessary. 
but also when we live with a getting to know death as a part of life, it actually just enhances life. You know, I am more full and more available for the omnipresent beauty that is in every single day because I know and touch death intimately. You know, so that is, that's that's the, we are so scared of going there, but actually the doorway is through, like with most things that are difficult, and on the other side is a liberation and a celebration and a deepening of gratitude and, you know, a daily cleaning up of life and, you know, living life really, really differently because I actually know that today might be my last day. This conversation with you might be my last conversation. Mm. Let me be here with you in your beauty right now sharing this conversation because we don't know. I wish someone would tell us. (laughs) We don't know. Um, You know, I think what you describe, even where we started the conversation was around fear or love. And what you're describing is this kind of dance of both because we see them as one or the other and yet it's in it's in the midst of the fear. It's in the palliative care rooms that, um, that, you know, the laughter can be the deepest, the love can be the strongest. It's in those, those places of fear of stepping through that you're, you're describing. I want to shift a little bit because I think these are in such important conversations, but take you from the palliative care room mm-hmm. to the boardroom. Okay. And so much of your work is in leadership. Um, yes. And it's not necessarily the, the, the bow that you would cast uh, to talk about love and fear, to talk about consciousness in leadership. Why is it so important for leaders to have the courage to step into these conversations? If we just purely take the conversation about death, it's been a really difficult conversation to have. We can't do leadership well unless we've got the courage to have difficult conversations because a lot of leadership is about having difficult conversations. And when we don't have those difficult conversations or when we don't allow those difficult conversations in our organisations, they go underground. You know, they happen behind the cooler, you know, or they happen in the tea room or they happen when you're bitching to your other teammate but all of the people who you really need to have that conversation with never are privy to those conversations when they go underground. And, you know, the word courage, liqueur, from coming from a French term called, you know, from the heart, you know, we need to be able to develop a courageous heart so that we can have those conversations and also have them and maintain connection. So in some ways there's a there's a, a link between the palliative care difficult conversations and the difficult conversations that happen and need to happen often every single day around our businesses, especially in the last year. Wow, how many difficult conversations have been required mm. by our organisations and our workplaces? And when you've worked with a CEO who does come from love, and I've had the benefit of working with, say, probably three in corporate 
I've had the benefit of working with more in not-for-profit or in, in, in actual fact in armed groups. You know, they come more from love, which seems an oxymoron, but mm. it's not. When you've had the benefit of working with a CEO who is more deeply centred in the value of love than they are of fear, the way that they lead is extraordinary. And the effects on their cultures are amazing. And their employee engagement and buying and cultural surveys and sick leave goes down and profitability increases and all sorts of stuff happens. That's just magic and it comes from love. So it's actually all of the people I've ever worked with, therefore taught me, you know, the difference between leading from fear or stress, anxiety, or being super concerned, whatever whatever terminology they use. But those, they have taught me as much as those leaders that come from love. With, um, and again, I'm going to probably put you on the spot a little bit, but thinking about if you were to sit down with a leader this afternoon and yeah. what you heard was, I'm so stressed, my I'm putting out fires, my team are at each other's throats, I don't know what to do. I've got all these balls in the air kind of juggling. Um, and you can see that, you know, in their kind of manner and, and in their, and I'm not sure that I can trust people and we've had to navigate a really tough year and I've had people working from home and I don't know what they're doing. What might be the first few things that you would do with them? Where's, where's the jumping off point? There's two things that come to mind. The first thing I would probably say is, okay, Let's just really pause right now. This is really important what you're sharing. And I want you to tell me more about that. But also there'd be something I'd be doing with my own body and that would be to really make sure that I've just gone into in another level of consciousness around my own presence. And, that, and I would probably do a really slow expanding so that my whole heart is now starting to to open at a completely different level of awareness so that I'm, you know, you can see my arms being held out like this, metaphorically that I'm doing that. So if it's true that our own heart rate can actually affect the heart rate of another person or any person within 12, 12 feet of us, then how can I use my own body as a tool to already start to pace and lead that person into a state of deeper consideration about what else is really happening for him so that they can find really their own answers, and they always do. Um, The the next trick for me is to shut up. Great yeah. call out <laughs> it's those moments of, again, that just being present, uh, allowing that experience to kind of come through as well. I can remember in one of my very, very early courses, a lady called Di McKissick said to me, you know, Mary, the best advice I give you is that when you've got something profound to say, shut 
<laughs> and it's not being instead for 30 odd years, and I'm still practicing it, Ellie. <laughs> but I know the answer. Let me just tell you this is what you should do. <laughs> I had another CEO say to me one day, because you know, he's wrestling with this really big mm. problem, and you know, and within a couple of minutes, and I've got the perfect solution that's you know, just consultantly beautifully laid out. And he said, You have just undressed me too quickly and yeah. he said you know this is a really big issue for me and you've got the perfect little down pat answer I feel really exposed and naked wow what a beautiful teaching for me yes take your time <laughs> go at their pace <laughs> slow slow yeah. hands always more enjoyable you know yeah. just slow it all down it's okay slow it all down slow it all down and expand time because the reality is you might only have 30 minutes to an hour and even that is a luxury for many people who are working at that level. So how do we slow it down and how do we expand it, you know, out? Mm. Well, the, part of the language that you bring into um, consultancy and into the corporate world, into leadership, is uh, the terminology of consciousness, mm. being much more conscious. What does it mean to you? What does consciousness mean to you? Because I think it can have different meanings for different people. Absolutely. It's a really good question. Um, we, If I just jump to the theory just for a sec, mm. so we, we know that there's different levels of conscious awareness, you know, when you're in the egoic stage, you know, which is a normal natural part of development, but we're really aware of ourselves as ourselves and who we are. And then we know that the next level, we start to develop a reactive framework that helps us get what we want in life, complying, controlling, protecting, whatever it is. And that all comes out of um, Karen Hornsey's work. And that that is also normal, but many of us get stuck there. And beyond that, when you start to consciously choose and shape your identity, that's deeply informed in you being okay in the world without being severely affected by the good opinion of everyone else. Um, And even when all of those opinions are completely different and varied, when you can stand within who you are with that awareness of others too, but not not being blown off course by by what they think of you or who they think you are, then you you come from a really different level of consciousness, and you can't probably really get there without having quite a deep understanding of yourself and other people. And so that's another whole level of learning and development that is an essential requirement of leadership. So that's what we would call the creative level of consciousness that that is fueled from a from love, where the reactive, the one underneath that, fueled by fear. But the area that I'm really, really interested in now are two areas, and that is um, integral con- consciousness. So that is when we can manage complexity and polarities and work with both with equal depth and skill. And it's taken me a long time to really understand this and I can really see that when I when I couldn't get it and, and what my thinking was doing then, 
But I don't think we can get to that level with really without really looking at our shadow side. You know that that we can't see that other people can see um, that that we don't want to know about ourselves that that we might have already rejected. But when we spend time and start to go there, I think the depth of who we are has an exponential expansion and that is the leadership that I think is actually required to go forward because it handles complexity, it is incredibly agile, it has the ability for a flourishing of creativity, it can stay in the pain, it can look at the whole system and find innovative solutions that most people can't see because it can work with the differences in the polarity. And I think the other thing about that level is that if we really want to develop agile, empowered and flat management structures that have got a fluidity about them, then the only level of consciousness that can work at that level is a consciousness developed in the integral or at least at least informed quite fully by the creative so i look at what organizations are requiring and saying what they demand from their employees now but most of the leaders that i work with don't have that level of consciousness themselves so they can't create it in an organization you know, we've got the language for it, mm. but we haven't yet quite grown up with the consciousness development that's required to be able to match that. But what else I'm also finding is that many of our younger people, I would say, are at a higher level of conscious development using using that as a scale than many of the people that they are being led by. So a very simple example of that. It is incredibly rare to find a young person who doesn't think that developing a sustainable business framework, which includes how we care for our environment, is at odds with running a profitable business. But I still work with managers who find that an incredibly hard concept to get round because they keep getting stuck on the bottom line as measured by a very limited metric, which isn't valid anyway. You know, they think it will affect the dollar cost in a bottom line, but actually what we know mm. is that a true values-based organisation will outperform a non-values-based organisation and values are not just a set of nice words on a wall. Yeah, but I think it's ten times and that's but I think that's... Cotter and Heskett's work. Just, uh, I, I nearly wrote that in an article this morning. I should have done because then I wouldn't have done <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I've, I've heard and possibly even upwards from that. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. But it is those invitations to the conversations of it's not this or this. And, I, you know, if we look at even 2020, a lot of that has been shaken up just in flexibility, the way we work, where people work. Um, and I'm sure like... Um, myself, you've seen it's the leaders who trust, who deeply care for their people um, where it's worked. It's been the leaders who were already fearful, untrusting, where, you know, it's amplified all of that in a different way. Word you've just used, um, Ali, and that's the word amplified. 
because that's what I see ha- happens, I think, at death, out of all the deaths that I've seen, that whatever you haven't worked on gets amplified. Mm. That's the same for corporate. Whatever you haven't worked on in times of high stress, like COVID, gets amplified. So in your example, those beautiful leaders who are already trusting, you know, that got amplified Mm. and that was the glue that allowed a transition in an incredibly short period of time so much easier, whereas the ones that were in their reactivity, that got amplified as well. So I love the word. Yes, yeah, I've seen it time and time again. I had someone say, you know, what what leadership qualities do we need this year? And I think it's just, yeah, work work on yourself to then turn up uh, turn up for ways and the others. Um, but I think that invitation as well to be able to hold polarity and, and I do wonder, you know, there are times where we're, it does require a conscious decision to be really present to hold both of those and you might be the only person in the room who's okay with that because it can feel like strength comes from I'm I'm right you're wrong it's us versus them that it's either this or that as opposed to sitting in the this and that um, isn't it a powerful word and mm. <laughs> I just change order and and yeah that. What do you see is if we think about the next 12 months, inevitably it will bring change and uncertainty. If there are leaders listening or those wanting to step into leadership roles or to influence their leaders, uh, what are those those skills that you see that corporates and and workplaces are going to require in the next 12 months? That's a really, really good question. There's a big part of me that is incredibly practical. You know, I'm a businesswoman and and even though I've spent a lot of time exploring some of the deeper questions of life, I'm also very pragmatic. You know, what works, what's effective, what works, what makes a difference. So if I had to really use that frame, I would say Get women around your decision-making table. And the reason why is that we know that diversity adds richness. You just have one woman sitting on a peace negotiation table in a country emerging out of armed conflict, and that peace negotiation lasts on an average 15 years longer than if just all men negotiate the peace strategy. And one of the reasons why is that women bring in the lens of how are we going to feed our children, how are we going to rebuild our community, and how are we going to try and find gainful employment or how are we going to work to rebuild our connectedness. And when you don't have those qualities, if women can't feed their children, they'll send their men out to fight so that they can feed their kids. Mm. But if taking care of that and if they're starting to have full food in their bellies and they're starting to sleep knowing that they're not going to be killed that night, then they will fight so hard to make sure that you don't return to violent conflict war. So that's that's on a global scale. So we do not know what we're missing out on when we don't have women and other diversity around the decision-making table. So you have to include that. 
If you are white and male and over the age of 40, go and get a young person who you admire to mentor you because the world is changing so fast that we have to be mentored and educated by those people who naturally see the change that is coming and be informed by that. Oh, my goodness, I've got a futurist on our team and she's she's probably about 20 years younger than I am and her, she's got a really good brain. But when she tells me what's coming, I've and I'm talking about in the next three or four years. So one of the things she said to us yesterday, said to me yesterday, she's doing a futures uh, certification at the moment with a company out of America, and she was saying that they now know, they're now saying that the rate of change is going to increase so fast that unless your business is completely pivoting, like we've had to do for COVID every seven years, then you are dying. Your business, your organisation is dying. And going back, uh, say, 20, 30 years ago, the average lifespan for a really good, strong company was 100 years. Now it's seven. So even that, that informs my thinking as a leader. And I sure want young people around me telling me what's coming because I don't understand it and I can't see it but they're already living it. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Yeah. Great advice, diversity, being mentored by those who are living it, breathing it, seeing it, trusting them. (laughs) Yeah. And pay them too. Yes. Develop develop their self-worth, you know, as you're doing that process. Mm. So that's the two things that I would say. And if I was going to add one more, I'd say you have to, practice or I strongly recommend that you develop practices that support you, nurture you because it's going to get tougher and I think if I look at some of the predictions, it's going to get a lot tougher. So we need to find really effective ways to shore up who we are so that we're not buffeted by the winds and that we don't become the reactive um, whirlwind in our organisation. And, you know, it doesn't really matter, I think, what that is for you. It may be swimming every day. It may be something like yoga. It may be meditation. And the research on the meditation, as most of us now know, is just so solid. Um, It may be just walking every single day. It may be making sure you go into nature. It may be being on the treadmill. Sort of doesn't matter what it is, but get a practice that really supports you and have have a supportive team around you. So I've just come from a body worker this morning and I went, okay, I'm, I'm stepping into some big work. I thought I was retiring, but actually, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, I want to work. I, I want to bring what I'm seeing to the world. I want to be a part of the change that's coming. So I said to her, okay, I want you in every single month. So I know I'll book in a massage every single month and this deep body worker every single month. And bar none, it is really important that my body keeps on getting loosened up, even just from the computer work we're doing yeah. every day. <laughs> so there you go. 
three tips or four? Yeah, we'll take them all. <laughs> take them all. <laughs> and you know, they go they go together as well. If I think we have to move so fast, you don't you've got to work on yourself, whether it is that care. We just don't have time to hold grudges anymore. We don't have time to avoid conflict. We we've got to be able to otherwise you become irrelevant very, very quickly. Imagine if you hadn't just pivoted like you've done. Mm. Imagine if you even because you were one of the very first consultancy companies that I saw do an amazing leapfrog pivoting within a matter of weeks. Now that's incredible, but you might be called to do that every few years now. And that requires, you know, as we all know from this year, it requires a lot of energy. So how do we, how do we make sure our tank is really as full as possible and also be really mindful when, like I am right now, where I go, I'm, I'm really empty now. Hmm. I am empty and I'm really full because it's been an amazing year of work. Um, but I, and I am empty. Yeah. It's, it's time to stop. Yeah, and to put the voice to that for sure. Mary, we could keep this conversation going and I feel like if we had three other conversations, we would, we would find paths to, um, to go down. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. If I were to offer that term to you, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Learn, do whatever you possibly can to learn how to love well and that means the ability to be able to be open in your giving of love and also how to receive it. I think if you do that, it sort of doesn't matter when you go. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's any time you go is a celebration because any time you live is a celebration. So that's what I would say, Ellie. Powerful to learn both, to give and to receive and be in the moment. Thank you so much, Mary. You've shared so many kind of insights, such a delight, such important work that you do out in the world. Recharge, reset, because I think you're going to be needed. (laughs) So much for today. And I look forward to a dinner party conversation with a few of those people that we know that may be worth recording. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll do that for sure. (laughs) Thanks for your time. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life. <laughs>